Dear sir, have fifty thousand dollars ready, twenty five thousand dollars in twenty dollar bills, fifteen thousand dollars in ten dollar bills, and ten thousand dollars in five dollar bills. After two to four days, we will inform you where to deliver the money. We warn you from making anything public or for notifying the police. The child is in good care. Extract of the kidnapper's ransom note. This was the Lindbergh kidnapping, and this is the good, the bad, and the pure evil. Charles Augustus Lindbergh Jr. was born June 22, 1930, to aviator Charles Lindbergh and Anne Marrow. On March 1, 1932, at about 10pm, the Lindbergh's nurse, Betty Grow, couldn't find 20-month-old Charles Jr. She would look for Anne, thinking maybe he was with her, but Betty found Anne coming out of the bath without the boy. Betty went to his father in a panic. She couldn't find the toddler. Charles the father rushed to the child's bedroom. No Charles Jr. to be found. A badly written ransom note in an envelope lay on the windowsill. Fearing the worst, Charles Sr. went and grabbed his gun. He and the family butler, Ollie Waitley, went outside to search the property. They went around the whole house and ended up below Charles Jr. window where they found a baby's blanket, piece of wood and a poorly built portion of a ladder and footprints. Once these were found, the men came back inside. Charles Sr. called a friend and family lawyer, Henry Breckenridge, along with the New Jersey State Police. The butler, Waitley, also called the local Hopewell police. When Charles Sr., aviation celebrity, both state and local police arrived quickly and started an extensive search inside the home and outside on the grounds. A fingerprint expert was brought to the home around midnight. He would examine the note and the ladder. No usable prints of fingers or feet were found. This led to the idea the kidnapper or kidnappers had worn gloves on their hands and something covering their shoes. Weirdly, in the child's room, there was no adult fingerprints found. Not the mother's, not the father's, not even the nurse. Nowhere to be found. Not on the crib, inside a window. The only prints found was that of Charles Jr. The poorly handwritten ransom note, the opening of this episode, would have a strange symbol at the bottom of it. It had two interconnected outlined circles that were done in blue, surrounding a solid red circle with a hole punched in the middle of the red circle. There was also two holes, one left of the blue line and one right of the blue line. Looking at the note, it was quickly picked up that the poorly written note was probably done by a non-English dominant speaker and they suggested were Germany as recently in America. The FBI had a scattered artist do of a mock of a man they believed was the kidnapper. 
They then looked at the ladder used in the abduction. The ladder wasn't built exactly as it should be, but did indicate it was built by a person with construction knowledge and who was comfortable with wood. This to them would hint to a person in the building industry. The ladder was examined for fingerprints, but again, none were found. Even the silvers of the ladder were examined and still nothing. They looked into the type of wood used, the pattern the nail holes made, and if the ladder was made inside or outside. This would be key in the later trial. March 2nd, 1932, the Attorney General and FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover contacted Trenton, New Jersey Police. He told them to contact the FBI immediately for any additional help or resource. May 1932, the FBI got federal jurisdiction when the president declared the FBI was at the disposal of New Jersey police and that the FBI should coordinate and conduct the investigation. The New Jersey police put up a reward of $25,000 for any information to the case. On March 4, 1932, a man by the name of Gaston B. Maines was talking to Evelyn Wallace McLean. Evelyn was an American mining heiress, socialite and social leader. The pair were talking about the hot topic, the kidnapping. Gaston told Evelyn that he would be play a major role in getting the Lindbergh baby back. He explained he knew and could find the kidnappers because weeks before he was asked to be involved in what was called a big kidnapping and he claimed a friend was the kidnapper. The next day, Gaston contacted Evelyn, saying he spoke to the friend who had the child. He convinced Evelyn to give him $100,000 to get the child, as the ransom had doubled by then. Evelyn wanted to help, so she gave Gaston the money. She waited and waited, but Gaston was gone. Realising she was conned, she called for him to give back the money. He refused and Evelyn reported him. He was arrested, charged with embezzlement and sentenced to 15 years. The kidnapping was huge news at the time and word spread quickly. Hundreds came onto the estate to help or more so to be nosy, putting hundreds of footprints, destroying any footprint evidence. So at the home, you had police, well-connected people, and well-intended people. Military colonels offered help, although only Hugh, Hubert Norman Squaskoff, superintendent of New Jersey State Police, was the only one with law enforcement expertise. The other colonels included Henry Skillman Breckenridge, who was a Wall Street lawyer, and William J. Donovan, a hero of World War I, who later became head of the Office of Strategic Services, or OSS. These men and Charles Lindbergh suspected the kidnapping was done by organised crime associates. From the wording of the letter, they believed the suspect was German. At that moment, Lindbergh was still in control, using his influence. Mickey Rosner was contacted. He was known as a Broadway hanger. 
a person who becomes buddy-buddy with celebs for his or her own gain. Rosnar was rumoured to have connections to mobsters. He would speak to two speakeasy owners, Salvatore Spittel and Irving Bits, for help. Lindbur quickly endorsed the pair and had them his personal connection to deal with the mob. Many organised crime members, including the big guns Al Capone, Willie Moretti, Joe Adams and Abnor Zilman, all spoke from prison offering help to find and return the baby if they got money or legal favours in return. Capone was particularly eager to help in return being released from prison as his help according to him would be the most effective on the outside. But that ran too big of a risk of Capone escaping, so it was denied. The morning after the kidnapping, authorities made President Hoover aware of what happened. At the time, kidnapping was a state crime, so it had no reason for federal involvement. Attorney General William Mitchell met Hoover and made him aware the Department of Justice would be set in motion to cooperate with New Jersey officials. The Bureau of Investigation, later called the FBI, was allowed to investigate the case while the US Coast Guard, US Customs Service, US Immigration Service and Washington DC Police were all put on standby in case they were needed. New Jersey officials put a reward up for $25,000 for the safe return of little Lindy. The Lindbergh's would add their own reward of 50000 so the total reward was $75,000 or $1.2 million today, which is huge money today, but back then it was unimaginable as the nation was in the middle of the Great Depression. March 6th, a new ransom letter came by post to the Lindbergh home. The postmark was March 4th in Brooklyn and had the same blue and red circles like the note before. The ransom was raised to $70,000. Then a third ransom came, including the circles, but this one was sent to Breckenridgesville. The note would instruct a Mr. John Condon to be the go-between for Lindbergh and the kidnapper or kidnappers. It also wanted acknowledgement of the letter being received printed in a newspaper. Instructions would also give details of the box size for the money and warned of no cops. So who was John Condon? John F. Condon was a well-known Bronx personality and a retired school teacher. He actually offered $1,000 of his own money if the kidnapper gave the child to a Catholic church or priest. Condon got a letter apparently written by the kidnapper approving him as the go-between for them and Lindbergh. Lindbergh accepted this idea. Following the kidnapper's instruction regarding the newspaper announcement, Condon placed a classified ad in the New York America. It said, quote, money is ready, Jaffsy, end quote. Condon then waited for further instructions. A meeting was finally came up late one evening at the Woodlawn Cemetery between Condon and a member claiming to be part of the kidnapper's gang. According to Condon, the man he met stood in the shadows and never came out, so he didn't get a good look of him. 
He said he spoke with an accent. The man called himself John. He said he was a Scandinavian sailor who was part of a gang of three men and two women. The baby, he said, was on a boat, unharmed, and would come home after the ransom. Condon wasn't very trusting of this. But on March 16th, Condon was sent the child's sleep suit as proof this came with another ransom note. Once Lindbergh confirmed the sleep suit was indeed their child's, Condon placed another ad, in this time in home news, saying, quote, Money is ready, no cops, no secret service. I come alone like I did last time, end quote. April 1st, Condon received a letter saying it was time for the ransom. The ransom was placed in a wooden box that was custom built so it could be easily identified. The ransom included gold certificates in hopes to gain attention if used. The money bills weren't marked but the serial numbers were recorded. April 2nd, Condon was approached by an unknown cab driver and handed a note. He met with John with only $50,000, insisting that's all that he could be raised. John accepted it, handed Condon a note and left. The note said the child was in the care of two innocent women. May 12th, Orville Wilson, a truck driver, was travelling with his assistant, William Allen. They pulled over to the side of the road about five miles from the Lindbergh home. Alan had to take a leak, so he went into the trees, and this is when he found the body of a little boy. The little boy's skull was fractured, and the body was in a state of decomposition, with evidence animals have been added to the body. It also appeared a grave for the body was attempted and abandoned. Betty Grau, the nurse, identified the boy was the missing baby from an overlapping toe he had on his right foot and he was wearing a shirt that she had made him. The blow that fractured his skull is believed to be the cause of death. The family insisted he was to be cremated. These types of crimes are usually done by someone who knew the family and suspicion usually falls on the parents. June 1932, suspicion fell on Violet Sharp, a British house servant at the Marrow home. Her story didn't really add up regarding her whereabouts on the night when the child went missing. It was also reported by being questioned, she came across nervous and uneasy. She committed suicide on June 10, 1932 by ingesting silver polish containing cyanide just before her fourth question. Later, she would be ruled out as a suspect because her alibi was confirmed. The police would be criticised for their forceful handling of Violet. Condon also fell under suspicion. He was questioned and had his home searched, all finding nothing. Lindbergh was stunned by Condon during this time. After the child was found, Condon remained unofficially involved in the case. To the public, he was the main suspect and in some circles, he was the kidnapper. For two years, he visited the police over and over, determined to find the man he called Cemetery John. Condon's actions in the case just got weirder and weirder. Once on a bus, he started to shout randomly he saw the suspect. He announced his secret identity and demanded the bus to stop. 
Confused and a bit, bit spooked, the driver stopped and Condon raced off after the suspect, but he had vanished. People would see Condon as taking advantage of the tragedy for his own gain. Soon the case was at a standstill. No developments, little evidence, so attention went to tracking the ransom. 250,000 pamphlets were given to businesses in New York City with the ransom money serial numbers. Some bills appeared here and there, some as far away as Chicago, but whoever was spending them was never found. A presidential order came that all gold certificates were to be exchanged for bills by May 1st, 1933. Days before the deadline, a man brought nearly $3,000 to a Manhattan bank for exchange. Later, it was found to be from the ransom. The name given was J.J. Faulkner, won an address at 537 West 149th Street. Officers went, but no Faulkner was living there. However, a Jane Faulkner did live there 20 years earlier. When she was questioned, she denied any involvement. For 30 months, a number of bills were being spent in New York City. Detectives started to see a pattern. The spending route was Lexington Avenue subway, which connected the Bronx to East Side Manhattan, including Yorkville, a German-Austrian neighborhood. September 18, 1934, a Manhattan bank teller noticed a gold certificate from the ransom. In the bill's margin was a New York license plate pencils 4U-13-41-NY. This stretched to a gas station nearby where the manager wrote down the license plate of a customer acting what he called squirrely. The license plate was of a sedan owned by Richard Hauptmann in the Bronx, a German immigrant with a shady criminal past in Germany. When he was arrested, Hoffman had $20 gold certificate and $14,000 of ransom money in his garage. Hoffman was arrested, interrogated and beaten for one full day and one full night. Hoffman insisted the money and other items were not his but a friend and former business partner who he named as Isidore Fish. Fish had returned to Germany and shortly died after arrival home on March 29, 1934. Hauptmann said he knew nothing about the contents in Fish's shoebox until after his death. This is when he opened it to find the money. Hauptmann kept the money, claiming it was owed to him from a business deal with Fish. Hauptmann denied any connections to the kidnapping, any acknowledgement that the money in his home was from the ransom, he denied it all. Police went on to search Hopman's entire home, finding more evidence linking him to the crime. There was a notebook containing sketches of a ladder similar to that at the Lindbergh's house. There was also John Condon's phone number and his address. In the attic, wood was found and this was examined and an expert concluded it was exact match to the wood used on the ladder at the crime scene. September 24, 1934, Hoffman was indicted for extorting $50,000 ransom from Lindbergh. Just two weeks later, on October 8, 
he was indicted in New Jersey for the murder of Charles Augustus Limber Jr. October 19th, he was placed in jail in Flemington, New Jersey. Charged with capital murder, the trial was held at Hunter Dunn County Courthouse and was soon called the trial of the century. Recorders came from far and wide, taking over the small town, booking out every hotel room. Judge Thomas Whitaker Trenchard presided over the trial. The New York Daily Mirror approached Hampton. They offered him an attorney named Edward J. Riley if he gave them the rights to publish his story, which he accepted. David Willenstein attorney general of new jersey headed the prosecution evidence against him included twenty thousand dollars of the ransom money found in the garage testimony by eight handwriting experts including that of albert s osborne who is considered the father of the science of question document examination in north america all eight pointed out similarities in hopman's writing and that of the ransom note. The defence team sought experts to rebut this, but two declined to testify. Two wanted $500 before examining the notes, which they ignored. They did have other experts, but the defence never called them. The state called the head of the Forest Products Laboratory named Arthur Coiler to go through photos that demonstrated the wood from the ladder matched that of the plank in the attic of Hopman's home. Going through the type of wood, direction of tree growth, milling pattern, the grain, they all matched even the four oddly placed nail holes lined up with the nail holes in Joyce's in Hopman's attic. Condone's address and phone number was found written in pencil on a closet door in Hopman's home. To explain how he would have such details and why it was on the closet door, Hopman told police, quote, I must have read it in the paper about the story. I was a little bit interested and keep a little bit record of it. And maybe I was just on the closet and was reading the paper and put it down the address. I can't give you explanation about the telephone number. End quote. The ladder sketches found in Hopman's notebook was suggested to be the crime scene ladder. Hopman said this sketch and others he had were done by a child. Hopman wasn't a rich man, in fact he had no obvious source of income when he was arrested. But yet he was able to buy a $400 radio, about $8,000 today, and sent his wife on a trip to Germany. Hopman was identified as the man who took delivery of the ransom, although it is not sure who identified him, as the go-between condone didn't pick Hopman out of the lineup. He insisted Hopman was not Cemetery John. Hopman, according to Condon, was heavier than the mystery, mysterious John, with a different eye color and hair color. Lindbergh did identify Hopman, but it was by voice and not appearance. And even Lindbergh said it would be difficult to identify the culprit for certainty by voice alone. 
However, witnesses did point to Hopman being the man who spent the Lindbergh Gold Certificates, was seen in the area on the day of the kidnapping, was absent from work the day of the ransom payment, and quit two days after ransom day. Hopman also never got another job, yet appeared to live comfortably. Once the prosecution rested, the defense went straight into with a long examination of Hopman. Hopman testified that he was not guilty and that the box of gold certificates had been left by a friend, Isidore Fish, and he went back to Germany December 1933 and was dead by March 1934. Hopman told the story of one day finding a box of fish, fishes sitting on a shelf above the broom closet. When he opened it, he found money later confirmed the amount of $40,000 or nearly $620,000 today. Hopman explained Fish owed him $7,500. So to Hopman, this had them even. Technically more than even, but even to Hopman, so he lived on it from January 1934. The defense called Hopman's wife Anna to back up the finding story. But on cross-examination, she said she hung her apron each and every day above where Hopman said the box was, and she couldn't say 100% if she saw the box there. Later, a witness said Fish wasn't as the crime scene, and for a man with all this money, he had zero to pay for medical treatment when he was dying of TB. Fish's landlady also testified his rent was three dollars and fifty cents a week and he barely could pay it. The defense closed that everything against Hopman was all circumstantial. There was no reliable witness placing him at the scene and his fingerprints weren't on the ladder or the ransom note or anywhere in the nursery. Hopman was found guilty and sentenced to death. Immediately appeals were filed, the first of which was argued June 29, 1935. New Jersey Governor Harold Hoffman was convinced that the crime was solely done by Hoffman. But in October 16th, on October 16th, he secretly visited Hoffman in jail with a stenographer who spoke German. From this visit, he went and urged the Court of Errors and Appeals to go speak to Hoffman. January 1936, Hoffman declared he wasn't arguing Hoffman's innocence or guilt, but was arguing evidence showed it wasn't done by one person. He urged investigators to continue to bring all involved to justice. March 27, the press were aware Governor Hoffman was thinking about a second reprieval of Hoffman's death sentence and was seeking advice if a governor had the power to issue a second reprieval. March 30, 1936, 1936, Hoffman's second and last appeal for clemency was denied. Governor Hoffman announced that this would be the last legal action in the case and he would grant no more reprieves. But there was a delay. Mercy County Grand Jury were investigating the confession and arrest of a Trenton attorney named Paul Wendell. So they asked Warden Mark Kimberlin to hold off Hoffman's execution. So why were they looking at this guy Paul Wandel 
and what had he got to do with Limber? Well, in Mage Holly, New Jersey, just miles from Hopewell, was a man many called the American Sherlock Holmes. His name was Ellis Parker, and he was chief of detectives of Burlington County. He was the man to solve crimes, praised for his accomplishments and detective work. So it was a little odd that the greatest detective wasn't involved at all officially in the Limburg kidnapping, considering he was just miles away. Although not officially involved, the publicity and hysteria from the case had Parker secretly investigate. He had a bit of a mountain to climb as he had no access to the crime scene and no evidence to physically look over. But he had help by a volunteer and old pal, former attorney from Trenton, Paul Wendell. Wendell was erratic, believed mentally ill, but Wendell had connections to the underworld of crime. Wendell offered to contact these questionable guys for Parker. For months, Wendell gave Parker leads all going nowhere. Parker started to become suspicious of Wendell. Wendell had a lot of inside knowledge of the Lindbergh case. Parker also felt Wendell's state of mind and history of failures could lead him to one day's snap. With this, Parker wasn't convinced Hoffman was the guy who committed the crime. Even after Hoffman was arrested, sentenced and was in prison, Parker went on to visit Hoffman in prison, coming away with certainty he wasn't the guy and that Wendell was, so he had to get Wendell to confess. Parker deputized several men, including his son, and they abducted Wendell. They took him to a small house and encouraged him by force to confess. After a week confined and abused, Wendell broke and signed a written detailed confession that he was the Lindbergh kidnapper. Copies were sent to the New Jersey Board of Pardons and this is what put a hold on the execution of Hoffman. But when the men released Wendell, he denied everything and told a story about the abduction and abuse he went through to force a confession. With no real evidence and Hopman already being convicted, the case against Paul Wendell collapsed and the final stage ended for Hopman. Ellis Parker was charged with kidnapping under the federal statute which had been written in the response to the Lindbergh kidnapping. Parker was convicted and sentenced to six years. He died within a year. The American Sherlock Holmes, the greatest detective, died in prison convicted of kidnapping the very crime he was trying to solve. So with that over, Hopman was now heading for execution. He turned down a large offer by Hearst newspaper for a confession. He was also offered to have the debt changed to life if he confessed, but he turned this down too. Hopman was electrocuted on April 3rd, 1936. After his death, questions came regarding how the investigation was done, the fairness of the trial, and if evidence was tampered with or planted. Twice in the 80s, Hoffman's wife, Anna, sued the state of New Jersey for unjust execution. The suits were dismissed due to the prosecutional immunity and the fact the statute of limitations had run out. 
Anna continued to fight to clear her husband's name until her death in 1994, aged 95. Many believed it was Charles Limber, the father, who kidnapped and killed the child. Some think the child was physically disabled and Charles couldn't handle it so he had the child kidnapped and secretly taken to Germany to be raised. Another thought was of a prank gone wrong. This involved Charles climbing a ladder outside, taking the child out the window to prank those inside, but that the child slipped from his grip and fell to his death. The body was then hidden in the woods and the story of a kidnapping began with the crime being blamed on Hoffman. All of these theories and what unfolded still led to the tragic death of a 20-month-old Charles Augustus Limber Jr. Thank you all for listening. Join us next time and I'll be looking at Joseph James D'Angelo Jr. or the Golden State Killer. He was an American serial killer, serial rapist, burglar and former police officer who did at least 13 murders, 50 rapes and 120 burglaries across California from 1974 until 1986. And he wasn't caught until 2018 and only sentenced to life in 2020. Until then, this was the good, the bad and the pure evil. <laughs>